Chapter 6, please. Our text is found in verses 5 through 8. I've entitled this message with a question. Does God make mistakes? Of course, we would say a resounding no. But why do we have to ask a question? It's important that we take some time to look at this particular passage here because of what it says. Not only about God's nature, but about our very own. Verse 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Shall we, shall we pray? Our Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have of coming to your throne of grace every week together. Coming, Lord, to this place where we can have an open Bible in our hands and on our laps and have the freedom, Lord, to study your word. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. For without your spirit, we we could not understand, Lord, what you have given to us in your word. We are grateful, Lord, that you care about our understanding. We come to a very difficult passage to understand at times. And so we ask for the outpouring of your spirit now to fill us with that wisdom and, and, and instruction and understanding. May it be, Lord God, that what we learn from this will help us in our daily walk with you. Will help us to realize the seriousness of the calling that you've given. The seriousness, Lord, of of the very prophetic word that you give as to the coming of Christ. And, Lord, to the word that encourages our hearts to the coming of your kingdom. May we be ready for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Now we have from the very onset of our study in the book of Genesis realized and commented on the critical nature of the content of the first 11 chapters, these chapters being the most scrutinized and attacked of the whole Bible, not only by unbelieving critics, but by liberal theologians as well. The atheistic evolutionists criticized the creation of all things in six 24-hour days. The relativistic free thinkers condemned God's standard of marriage, as said in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. But all of them disparage and ridicule a God who they think changes his mind. Now the thought is, of course, that if God is one that changes his mind and actually repents with regret of having made man, then he can't, he can't be much of a God. Well, let me put it this way. If God does change his mind and wishes he hadn't made man... 
in effect, having made a mistake, then he can't be God. But I can tell you with great certainty and with great confidence that our God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, just as his word says, our God has never, never does, and never will make a mistake. Now, I don't say that because, you know, of the emotion in my heart toward God, although I do say it with, with that emotion in mind. I say it because of what the Word of God says about our God. The Word of God is very clear that the Lord God is immutable. Now, that's a fancy theological word, but it's, it just means that He doesn't change. God is immutable. He is unchangeable. He is absolute. He is incontrovertible. He is indisputable. And He is undeniable. He is unquestionable and irrefutable and incontestable. That is our God. He never changes. As a matter of fact, in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, He says, For I am the Lord, I change not. That's all we need to know. The book of Numbers tells us in Numbers 23:19 that God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent, which means to change his mind. Has he said and shall he not do it? Has he spoken and shall he not make good? We have a faithful God. God is always faithful. There's never been a time that God hasn't been faithful. He never changes from his faithfulness. Our God is immutable. The Apostle Paul would write in, in Romans 11.29 that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, which means they are irrevocable. God doesn't change. And He doesn't change His mind. So what we're then having to deal with from the text that we have read earlier and we will read again are two theological issues. The first issue is that we are reading in verse 6 and verse 7 an apparent contradiction. We are seeing an apparent contradiction. What we're seeing in this passage as well is what theologians call either an anthropomorphism or more, more specifically an anthropopatheia which are really fancy words for, for meaning the, the, uh, uh, taking the, the character of man and placing them in, let's say, the anthropomorphism is, is taking the characteristics of man and, and applying them or ascribing them to other creatures or other people or other things. The anthropopatheia is ascribing the uh, characters of man to God. We'll see that in just a moment. I don't want to get too much ahead of myself, and I don't want to scare you with all these terminologies. We'll explain them as we get there. But, but let's go uh, to our text one more time. So you can see what the issue is. It says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. That's, that's the first flag that goes up. That it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. So now we have the issue set before us. What we're having to deal with as to our understanding that God is himself one who doesn't change, and yet he says, I repent. So let's first of all deal with the discernment of God. The discernment of God. I want you to remember one thing. God already knows the the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. God is eternal, therefore he has seen all things happen already. Nothing surprises God at all. This is one of the great attributes that we learn about God right away when we come to know Jesus. God is is a God that is uh, uh, all-knowing. So nothing surprises him. Yet, from our standpoint, we are looking at words written 
that give us the idea that he is discerning the things that man is doing. So we read, again, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So the fact that God saw that man's wickedness was great, and the word great here is of of, of great importance for us to understand. The fact that God saw that man's wickedness was great upon the earth implies that he was witnessing this wickedness and evil multiplying. For it to say that he saw the wickedness of man was great, it means that he saw that it was multiplying. It was was, uh, growing exponentially, as it were. With all of the millions and millions and millions, if not billions of people that were on the earth at that particular time of Noah. Man was committing more and more sin, more and more acts of wickedness based upon that great demonic work that had infiltrated and been instilled into the very fabric of human existence, including even his own, his very own DNA. What, what we have studied over the past couple of weeks to see very clearly that there was some issue between the fallen angels and, and, and the, uh, the daughters of men to bring about a race of giants to see all of this corruption and then for man to look at all of this and accept it and turn their backs on God that's the reason why man is being judged but nonetheless here the implications of every sort of sexual evil even as the Apostle Paul would later describe them in Romans chapter 1, and we'll get there as well, as well as the wickedness that, filled with, that was filled with violence and hatred, could not be overstated. And so it wasn't just sexual sins. Man had become corrupt. Man had become violent. Man had become filled with hatred toward each other. And this was being seen throughout all of creation. In particular, what was on the earth. And so at that time, society was not getting better. Now, now stop there for just a moment and think about this. If Jesus himself compares the times of Noah to the times that we're living in today, in the last days, we're expecting the, the coming of, of Jesus Christ. Would you not say then, as well, if, as, from a believer's standpoint, that society is, is not getting any better today? Well, it isn't. Society is not getting any better. No matter how hard man is trying to uh, improve society, whether it is by, by all of these technological and medical and, and, and uh, all these kinds of advances, sociological advances, It doesn't seem to be working. Society is not getting any better. Man keeps saying, well, we can work these things out ourselves. All we need is just, you know, just, you know, respect everybody else's truth. Well, that's not happening either. Because if we try to tell people about Jesus Christ, they say, get off of our backs. So, you see, there's a lot of double standards that we have to deal with. Society isn't getting any better. So if you go back to Noah's time, you realize this. Society at that time was really as worse as it could ever be. It wasn't becoming more and more righteous and godly. In fact, it was becoming more unrighteous and more ungodly. And then it was becoming more and more lawless and and crime-ridden. Lawlessness and crime, immorality and corruption were increasing more and more every year. And remember, man lived a long time in those days. And they just got more and more evil and more and more corrupt. So it wasn't decreasing, it was increasing. Lawlessness was increasing. Lawlessness is increasing today. We don't have enough law enforcement officers to cover all of the problems that are going on in our own city, much less in our state and in our, in our nation. And where's one of the first places they're trying to cut back in, 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 in various uh, communities and stuff? Our very own police officers. Then crime keeps going up. Something's wrong with that thinking. But in Noah's time, the, the wickedness of man had swept the earth, swept every place, every place where man was. You couldn't tell if somebody was a son of Seth or a, or, or a son of Cain. You can tell if they were in the line of Seth or in the line of Cain. 
There was only one now that was holding on to, to the line of Seth, and that was Noah. We'll get to him later. But the wickedness of man has swept every place where man was, and how much, like today, that is. Just like today. But this great wickedness does not simply mean that sin multiplied. It, it also means that sin became more extreme and more terrible. It wasn't just the quantity of sin, it was the quality of sin. It got worse. Sin was, uh, became more mean and vile. It became more immoral and perverse. It became more destructive and terrifying. It became more evil and devilish, more fleshly and carnal, more lustful and sensual, more obscene and flagrant, more filthy and foul, more gross and heinous. You think we could add to that list? That's what sin became. That's the way it is today. Since Adam's fall into sin, man had become exceedingly sinful and more and more bold in his sin. That is bold in their sin today. There was a time when society was much more moral on the outside, you know, superficially than it is today. If there were secret sins being done, I was being done undercover, as it were. But for, for, uh, for purposes of understanding all of this, there was a time when the superficiality of things, you know, the, 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 in other words, the surface things, was, was there was a lot more of a moral society. Not anymore. There's no respect for morality at all in our time. Well, think about this. In Noah's time, there wasn't either. Man was now committing great wickedness upon the earth, and God saw man's great wickedness. But God saw something else about man. He saw every imagination and thought of man was evil, evil continually. Every imagination and every thought. Think about that for just a moment. The imagination. Sometimes we tend to think of the imagination as a good thing. We can imagine a lot of things. But if you do a a good word study through the scriptures, you realize that every time imagination's is brought up, it's not a good thing at all. Because usually man begins to imagine things because of what the root of imagination is. The root of it, grammatically as well as spiritually, is focused upon image. And the making of images. Even John Lennon's song, Imagine. Think about that for a moment. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. Imagine there's no this. Imagine there's no that. You have to be real hard into imagining all of those things. I I, I thought it was very interesting when he wrote that song. If you have to imagine that they don't exist, then maybe they do exist. Do you understand? We don't want to live in a world that, uh, you know, we want to live in the perfect world. What's the perfect world? Man tries to imagine itself in that perfect world. Utopia. Uh, man has come up with those particular thoughts. But the Bible tells us that, uh, that God saw every imagination thought of man was evil and evil continually. Evil all the time, in other words. In other words, God saw that man was depraved, totally depraved. And it's important for us to understand total depravity here. Because we might argue whether man is capable of doing anything good at all. And, and we do have to admit that man from time to time does things that are good. Man oftentimes shows mercy and compassion. And he often works to build up the good, the good of society. But, but let's consider for just a moment what total depravity means. What is total depravity? Because I can assure you that verse uh, 5 of, of, of Genesis chapter 6 is speaking of a total depravity of man. Well, first of all, man has a sinful nature. Man has a sinful nature. From the very moment that Adam disobeyed God, God had told Adam, on the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will begin to die. 
You will die spiritually immediately, but you will begin to die. You, you who are created perfect and in my image, you're going to die. And you will die physically as well. But spiritually, you'll be dead. So man has a sinful nature from that point on. And everyone born from Adam and Eve was born with a sinful nature. Everyone born of the children of of Adam and Eve were born with a sinful nature. Everyone born to the children of the children of the children of Adam and Eve, all of them were born into into the very same sinful nature, with that sinful nature. So, man has a sinful nature, therefore man fails and man sins. Man cannot keep from sinning and doing wicked things. No matter how much man tries not to fail and sin, he will still find himself failing and sinning often. But then secondly, man, to understand total depravity, man is short of perfection. Man is short of perfection. Man was born perfect in the sense that man was created perfect, I should say. Not born perfect, but created perfect because God, out of the dust of the ground, created man in his image. Man is short of perfection now because of sin. Therefore, man comes short in everything that he does. Man always comes short in everything he does. Man can do nothing perfectly, uh, not with absolute perfection. I, I had a, uh, a high school teacher. He was a history teacher. And at that time, uh, you know, it wasn't a major thing in my own mind. I didn't know the Lord then, but I, I, I had a teacher who was a Christian. He truly believed the Word of God. He truly believed that man was no longer perfect. And no matter how good we could be at things, even in the gifts that God has given us, we are still imperfect beings. So, if he would give us a test, uh, a history test that was either a multiple choice or in, in some way, a, 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 just to make it simple, you know, you, you didn't, you could actually write out the answers or, or circle the answers and, and whatnot. And then when, when the test was over, if you really did your studying and you knew that you answered all the questions right, you could turn in your paper. And what would you expect? I expected a hundred. First time I ever took a test for him did everything right, and I gave him the test, and then when it came back to me, it said 99. And I looked at it, and I said, wait a minute. And I looked, I didn't see any red marks, you know, because every, everyone, every question was answered right. And I went to him, I said, that should be 100. He says, no, you're not perfect. <laughs> I was floored. And I said, I know I'm not perfect, but that should be a hundred. He says, only God's perfect, son. You get 99. I said, I need that point, sir. (laughs) Well, whether he was doing things right or wrong, I'll tell you what, it taught me a lesson. And the reality, only God is perfect. We are short of that perfection. No matter how good we are, no matter how great we can be in the gifts that God has given us, we are still imperfect beings. The third thing that uh, marks us, uh, marks people as totally depraved is that man has a corrupt nature. Now you would say, well, wait a minute, man is a, has a sinful nature, but now you say man has a corrupt nature. Well, let me explain. You see, man has a corrupt nature, therefore... Because of his corrupt nature, he contaminates, he pollutes, he sours, he spoils, he hurts whatever he does and touches. That's corruption. That's touching something else and making, it, making somebody else corrupt. And corruption spreads, folks. And it spreads wickedness and it spreads evil. And these are the things that, that mark out the total depravity of the, of, of, of the people that live in the days of Noah. James Montgomery Boyce, in his uh, commentary in the book of uh, Genesis, writes something of, uh, so insightful. I, I, just, I think it simplifies these thoughts that we're talking about. He said, when we say that men and women are totally depraved, a uh, good theological term for only evil all the time, 
We do not mean to say that they never do anything that uh, we would call good or that they never have aspirations in the direction of real good. We mean rather that even their best is always spoiled by their essentially sinful nature. Even their best is spoiled, is always spoiled by their essentially sinful nature. You see, in God's eyes, man's heart was evil. And it was only evil. That is, it was corrupted and contaminated and short of perfection. And with this in mind, anything short of perfection then, anything short of perfection is evil. For it stands in opposition to God and His perfection. In other words, whenever a man tries to make himself as good as God, Or better than God. Remember Lucifer tried that. But anytime man tries to make himself better than God. Because he has great wisdom. Or he has great intellect. Or he has great abilities. Or he has great powers. It's just evil. Because it's in opposition to the God who is perfect. And who is right. All the time. So, add to this that the very imaginations and thoughts of man were continually evil. The the word imagination I mentioned earlier, you know, there's there's a couple of words. I've already mentioned them. Imagine and, and, and image. But the Hebrew word for imagination is from a root word relating to pottery. It is from the root word or a root word relating to pottery. It means to fashion as a potter. The Hebrew word for imagination means to fashion as a potter fashions a pot. Consider it this way. Men fashioned, and still fashion today, by the way, but men fashioned wicked philosophies. They formed obscene artifacts. Look at the progression here. They, 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 They fashioned wicked philosophies. They formed obscene artifacts. They eagerly supported filthy causes. They they made vile sins fashionable. They poured society into their own mold. Folks, that's no different than what's happening today in our society. Men continue to fashion wicked uh, philosophies, philosophies that, that throw God out, that throw God's word out, ignore God. They form obscene artifacts. Nothing is sacred anymore. Nothing is sacred in, 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 our, in our day and time, in our culture and in our society. When the government begins to fund in, in, you know, the national arts programs and stuff, they begin to fund works by, by, by artists you know, that, uh, that are desecrating what some people consider to be holy or sacred things. I don't, even, I don't even want to go into the descriptions of what some of these things are, but if you keep up with the art world, you realize what I'm talking about. In other words, desecrating things with human waste. You understand what I'm saying? And calling it art. And people are being uh, subsidized from the government to do these things. They're making vile sins fashionable today. We're being told, listen, you, you, need to, you need to be tolerant. You need to accept the way everybody lives. You just need to accept it. You can't argue against it because if you argue against it, then you're, you're a hate monger, you know. It's not what it's about. But they're trying to pour society into that mold. It's happening today. Let's remember the text that Jesus gave us in Matthew 24, verse 37 through verse 39. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The things that are happening in this world are really bad. So think about this. They had to be as equally bad in Noah's time. Maybe not as sophisticated because of 
because of technology and all, but you know what? It was still bad. It was probably worse. Because the Mayan had to work even harder to come up with all of these wicked things. Jesus said, As the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. There's not anything that we have to write into that or, or, or put into that thought. It's just saying, just like today, we eat, we drink, people marry, people are given in marriage in our day and time. Unfortunately, in some ways, it's a lot different than it should, have been, it should be. But nonetheless, it says, until, that, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You read this particular passage in Matthew 24, and you can read it in, in Luke 21, and you realize God, Jesus is talking about judgment. He's talking about a great judgment that's coming. And people are going to need to be awake. We are living in the days and times where we're looking for the coming of Jesus Christ, but we're not awake. And folks, if anyone needs to be awake right now, it's the Christian. We need to be awake because the world is doing everything it can to destroy us. It's doing everything it can to silence us. It's doing every, everything it can, even in a free society as ours today, to stifle us from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be awake, folks. We need to quit playing games with God. We need to start serving God. But listen. He said they knew not until the flood came and they took them all away. You know, this is about judgment. God is coming to judge. Jesus, when he comes, he's coming to judge. First time he came, he came not to judge, but he came to save. We're still proclaiming that message. But when Jesus comes again, listen. He's coming to judge. To judge the world. And this is, this is Jesus, the Son of God, who says in, in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So it isn't about hate. It's about love. And you'll see that in just a moment. See, we, we've, had our, we've had all the people that have tried to do good things in society to try to make society get better. We've had our atom smashers and our health bringers, our food developers, our code breakers, our mind readers, our path finders and explorers. We've also, also had those who are determined to exploit all new discoveries for the advancement of evil. Listen, if we only took nuclear power and, and, and used it for good, boy, I mean, every society would be in good shape. But what have we done? We come up with nuclear power and nuclear fission and all of that, and guess what we do? We try to find ways to destroy man with it. Because we're living in a day and time when, when this technology is, is, is easily available, in, in a sense even countries now want that power, not for the sake of helping their people, but for the sake of destroying others. Just think of Iran for just a moment. They want nuclear power because they want to destroy Israel. That's just the bottom line. It's not, a, it's not an issue of polit politics or anything like that. It is an issue of that's exactly what they want to do. They've said it, and that's what they want to do. But they keep telling the world, no, we just want, we want it to help people. No. So we've had those who exploit all these discoveries. But think about the corruptors of our time today. We have corruptors who are dedicated to the spreading of, 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 of great sin that the Bible says is sin. We, we, have, uh, we have corruptors dedicated to the spread of pornography, to the spread of homosexuality, to the spread of licentiousness, deliberately trying to reshape society so that abnormality and vice are the accepted form and the accepted norm. That is not what God intended. And God does not change his heart and his mind. He has not changed his word. He's not changed his law. Listen to what... We're talking about 4,000 years that this, this word comes from Moses. 2,000 years later, Paul is saying it still exists. The problem is still there. Romans 1 verse 26 says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet or fitting. And, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind 
to do those things which are not convenient, which literally means not proper and things that should not be done. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things. What's that? Inventors. Imagination. Inventors of evil things. Disobedient to parents. You say, well, how did that get in there? Should that, not, should that not be there? Of course, it should be there. Look at the, look at the rise of, of, we call it domestic violence. There's nothing domestic about it within homes today. Not only have we seen in the news over the, the past, you know, many years, I mean, you know, kids murdering parents, but what about parents murdering kids? That, was, that happened this past week. A mother killed her children. I guess maybe she, maybe she read this. They're disobedient parents. Boom, you know. Come on, man. That's, what's wrong with this society? What's wrong with people? Maybe, maybe we have gotten too, we've gone too far away from God, huh? What do you think? What do you think? Without understanding, people go and picket and, and, and march for one cause or another, but do they have understanding? No. They just, they just move as they feel. Covenant breakers without natural affection. <clears throat> Implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they, which, that, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Have pleasure in people sinning. People today, that, that we live in a society today that just enjoys to see people sin. If that's, the, if, that, if, that was, if that's what makes them feel good, then let them do it. No. God showed us in His Word how we are to live. If we live His way, we live in His peace, we live in His understanding, we live in His, in His mercies. It's, it's, it's worse now than it's ever been because 2,000 years later from Paul, we're seeing it happen. So from God's discernment, we move on to God's disappointment and decision. The disappointment is in verse 6. The decision is in verse 7. Let's read them. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and agreed him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and, and, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Now we have to deal with, are, are we dealing with a God who can change his mind? Let's consider the disappointment and decision of God. What we find in verse 6 is what theologians call the anthropomorphism. Or as I said before, it's, more specifically, it's the anthropopatheia, uh, which is ascribing human attributes to God. Here we say, he repenteth, he grieved, he pained. Those are things that we ourselves feel, experience. We're applying them to God, who is eternal. And so, in this case, the phrase, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart, can be understood more literally as, the Lord was grieved. Now listen, the Lord was grieved, because in the Hebrew, it is, wa'in nachem, by the way, Nahem is, is, is a word associated with Noah, the name. And you'll see why in just a moment. So the Lord was grieved, Wa'in Nahem, that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain, Wa'it Aseb. Aseb deals with pain. And there's an interesting wordplay in this verse, because Moses describes the Lord's response to man's wickedness by making this play on words, on Lamech's naming his son Noah. Go to Genesis chapter 5. Just one page before this. And in verse 29, you'll see how this is a word play. This is, this is all done by the Spirit of God. This is, this is uh, you know, uh, Moses who was uh, inspired by, by the Holy Spirit. 
is doing this so that we can understand that God, in fact, does not change his mind. But listen, he says, he called his name Noah, saying, this same shall comfort us. The word comfort is Naham, which is the, the root word for Noah. The same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands. Work and toil, the, the, the word toil there is the pain. Aseb. So those same two words are found here in verse 29 as they are found in verse, 20, in verse 7 of chapter 6. Because of the ground which the Lord has, has cursed. So in both passages, Noah is introduced uh, with word plays associating his name, Noah, with the comfort from the grief and pain caused by man's rebellion. So by making God the subject of the verbs in, in chapter 6, verse 6, the Holy Spirit has shown that the grief and pain of man's sin was not something that only man felt. God himself was grieved over man's sin. That's verse 7. God himself was grieved over man's sin. In other words, not only would Noah bring comfort to mankind in his grief, but he would also bring comfort to the Lord. Now, when we deal with the apparent contradiction that I mentioned earlier, it comes from the usage of the word repent in the Hebrew in verse 6. Because depending on the context, and this is the way words work in the, in the scriptures, and that's why we have to be very careful when we study this. But depending on the context, the word naham can be used for either the word repent or the word sorrow or grieving. It just depends on the usage, how it's used in a certain context in a, in a verse. So understand this if you understand anything at all today, that in depicting God as grieving, we've given him that attribute that we were given, which was grief. In giving, in depicting God as grieving, the fact remains that grieve is a love word. Grieve is a love word. We do not grieve, in other words. We do not grieve for those we do not love. We do not grieve for those we do not love. When we grieve, we grieve because we love. God has seen the wickedness of man. He did not create man to be wicked. He did not create man to imagine these evil things. He did not create man to work out those evil things as they were doing. He grieved because he loved his creation. What a change from the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis where it said that when God created all things, he created them all good. But because of sin, because of man's disobedience, now we see things happening. God hasn't changed. What it's showing us is that God grieves because of our sin. The word is highly expressive. For it reveals the heartache of God over the rebellion and wickedness of men. His loving kindness was scorned. His patience was abused. His offer of salvation was, was ignored. And it stabbed him to his heart. Why do you think we feel? Why do you think we have emotions? We were created in the image of God. We don't have something that God didn't have. We need to know that God grieves because of sin.
Nevertheless, I want you to consider something. Consider what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. God continues to be long-suffering to us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God hasn't changed. God has not changed. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. He's not going to destroy the world again with a worldwide flood as he had, as he had after the days of Noah or during the times of Noah. He promised that. But he is going to come back and judge, and he's going to judge with a fervent heat. Yes, God is patient. Yes, God is long-suffering. And he wants people to come to him. But remember that his spirit will not strive with man forever. He gave a time limit, didn't he? Earlier on in this, in this chapter, he said, I'm not going to strive with man. You have 120 years. 120 years. Man was living a long time in those days. 120 years was a long time. 120 years gave man a long time to do things right with God. He is going to judge the world for their wickedness, and I believe that that day is fast approaching. How much has He given us? We don't live 120 years anymore. We don't live 130 years anymore. We don't live 900 years like Methuselah. But he's given us time to come to him. As for his decision in verse 7, where it says, The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Listen, God's sorrow at man and the, and the grief of his heart is, is the striking thing that we need to look at here. This doesn't mean that, the, that creation was out of control, nor does it mean that God hoped for something better but was unable to achieve it. That's not, that's not what this all means. And it certainly doesn't mean that God made a mistake. God knew all along that this was how things would turn out. But our text tells us loud and clear that as God sees his plan for the ages unfold, it affects him. It affects him. And it should affect us. God is not unfeeling in the face of human sin and rebellion. He is not unfeeling. Then, then what is this all about? That God was sorry that he had made man and that, his, that this grieved his heart. Again, God is not unfeeling or uncaring. Yes, he knew exactly what man would do and thus he is sorry to see how sin is destroying people's lives. It broke his heart. Remember when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, and it says he wept? Why? Why? He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why, why did he weep? Well, I believe it was because of the effect of sin upon people's lives. I believe it was because he, he realized that people didn't really believe and trust in God anymore. And that causes so much pain. Sin and unbelief cause so much pain. But that's our God. He truly loves us and He is grieved over our rebellion and our sin. So here we see the wrath of God that is going to be poured out upon a world that is in rebellion against Him. And, And please understand that God did not fly off the handle. He didn't lose His temper. His judgment is righteous. It is just. You see, the land needed to be cleansed. Man had destroyed himself. And it needed to be cleansed. But who would carry on the race if God wiped man out and everything that lived? Where would the seed come from in the midst of all of this evil? Well, we look at the next verse and we see that it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God had seen all the wickedness of man, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord.
Well, this is the verse that's going to bring us back next week. We're getting closer and closer now to studying the ark of, of Noah. Studying some of the things that happened in the, in the time of, of the flood. But let's not forget that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Paul tells us where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And that's always true of how God deals with his people. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You see, the grace of God is probably the greatest gift other than Jesus himself. The greatest gift given by God to man because it's undeserved favor. And God's grace is greater than the wickedness of man. As wicked as man was in the, in, in, in the sense of the whole world being prepared for judgment, God's grace was so much greater. One thing we need to understand, if we take anything home with us today, understand that God's love does not cancel out His holiness. God's love never cancels out His holiness. If men resist, he must respond in judgment. We've seen that in in Genesis 6. We saw it in the statements that Paul made in, in, uh, in Romans. We see what Jesus was saying in Matthew 24. There is a judgment coming. But those who have come to Christ will come to safe harbor. Before we come to the table of communion, let me just let me just close out here by saying that God makes no mistakes. He has seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, and he loves us with an everlasting love. Let me tell you this, we need to come to safe harbor with Christ. We need to come to safe harbor with Christ. I heard someone say this morning on a, on a, on a Christian program, that God never promised us a smooth road. He did promise us a safe arrival. As Christians, we're going to live in a, in a time where we will be persecuted for our faith in Christ. We are going to face struggles and trials in this lifetime. Because God never promised us a smooth road. What he did promise us was safe arrival to his kingdom. And if you're unsure of where you are in that particular journey of yours, my prayer before you take this bread and this cup, and I want everyone to take it, because this is for sinners. This is for us to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. But it's also for us to to focus our attention upon the cross, upon the blood of Christ, and upon the resurrection of Jesus. And folks, if you don't know if you're safe right now, then you need to come to safe harbor in Christ. Let's pray.